When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Don't forget to pack the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies for a post-lunch pick-me-up. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben, you are you, and that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. In the beginning of our opening notes for this episode, I had a, I, I had a relatively lame open-ended question, but I believe in it and I want to know, what's, what's on your mind? How are you guys feeling today? Are you trying to set up the topic? I, you know, originally I was when I wrote really that down. Know? Yeah, I really, really want to know. know? What, really what's do? what's going on with you guys? Yeah, um, you know, just the general state of affairs in the country, the world. You know, mm -hmm. base level fear and paranoia. Um, but other than that, not too bad. Yeah, feeling pretty good today. Mm -hmm. I don't know. The it looked like it was going to storm. I haven't seen any rain yet. So hey. It's a bright new day. You're keeping it light. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it's weird because that's such a common phrase in English and it's a very common sentiment in all of humanity. People will say, Hey, what's, what's on your mind? As though your mind is some sort of object, like a table upon which things can be placed, you know? And 
Today, we're also touching on a question that has baffled, confounded, perplexed, and uh, infuriated people throughout history, which is what what is a mind? You yeah. know, is when we say a mind, are we saying that we are observing a consciousness? You know, like, are we talking about just the brain itself and its functions? Mm-hmm. Right. And maybe just just for setup here, let's explore the idea of, of consciousness, because you told us a, a pretty impressive and fascinating quotation earlier before we went on the air. Yes. Uh, a gentleman named Daniel Dennett, who is a philosopher, I I can't speak for him. But I would say he thinks of himself as a philosopher slash cognitive scientist. Um, and he gave a TED talk in 2007. And uh, he had this to say uh, on the idea of what is a consciousness. He says that what we are is approximately 100 trillion little cellular robots. That's He says that's what we're made out of. No other ingredients. We're just made of cells. And not one of those cells is conscious. And not a single one of those cares who you are or knows that you are a thing. Uh, he says somehow he and everybody else in his field, they have to explain or at least they're tasked with explaining when you put like how you put together these groups of cells of trillions of cells. If you group them into what he calls armies and battalions, uh, how do those these little robotic unconscious cells, how do they become us? How do they create ideas? How do they uh, create memories and colors? How do we see colors from these cells? And um, and then what does that mean? Like, is that consciousness if you can observe those things and think about those things? And then he uh, he ended that thought with just somehow all of the content, all the consciousness that we experience is accomplished by the the busy activity of these hordes of neurons that are in our brain that are just firing and storing information through connections. Uh, pretty crazy. And yeah. the biggest thing is he says is how is this possible? Like how, how could that be? I really, you know, I really appreciate that because it makes me think of our examination of, of biomes, you know, or, or microbiomes mm-hmm. rather, where, where we see that there's, there's an entire world in somebody's digestive system. Yeah. Right. And, uh, I, I think the first time I learned about that was when we were doing an episode of our show Brain Stuff on farts. Yeah. Yeah. And also shout out to Le Petomon, the uh, professional, uh, professional flatulist. Story for another day. Mm-hmm. I'm getting a, I'm getting a hard side eye from Noel on this one. Sorry, <laughs> hard, man. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Noel. I know, you know I, how I feel about farts in the podcast studio. It's for a real. very sensitive subject because it's a very small room. It uh, is. The concept of consciousness. How is it possible, right? Mm-hmm. What What is a mind? People have generated multiple interpretations, suppositions about this. And when we started digging into this, we were inspired, but we also thought this is a lot. This yeah. is a lot of weird stuff to unpack and explore. And luckily – we were able to contact one of our recurring guests, a longtime friend of the show, ladies and gentlemen, Joe McCormick, co-host of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Hey, how are you guys doing today? Great. Now that you're here. God, we were really bummed out before you walked in. A little along. bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for walking in and saving <laughs> saving the day. Well, he just lights Y'all up are just going to continue yeah. pretending that I wasn't sitting here the whole time? What are you talking Dude. about? You You weren't sitting here. 
I was not conscious of it. Yeah. So obviously it sounds like you guys want to talk about consciousness today. Yes. And we actually did an, uh, a two-parter on consciousness mm. recently on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. Not so much on the problem of consciousness broadly, because how could you cover that in a single episode? It's a topic that comes up over and over again on our show. It's one of the most perplexing questions in all of science and the philosophy of mind. What is consciousness and where does it come from? Mm-hmm. And I like that you brought up that Daniel Dennett quote, Matt, because it, it, it calls to mind the problem of the heap. You all know about like the, the heapness problem. If you have one grain of sand, that's not a heap. And if you have two grains of sand, that's not a heap. But at some point, you keep adding grains of sand and a heap of sand emerges. Mm-hmm. At what point does the heap happen? It's hard wow. to pick a number, isn't it? Yeah. What's the threshold? Yeah. Yeah. And a similar kind of problem arises from the problem of consciousness that we know to some degree consciousness is created by brains that are processing information. Uh, one experiment you can do to sort of prove this to yourself is go under general anesthesia. If you go under general anesthesia, the information processing in your brain is suppressed and you have complete blackout. It's absolute loss of consciousness for the time that you're out. I only podcast while completely blacked out. That's yeah. all true. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so you, you, you come back from that, you're con- you regain your consciousness and you think, wow, okay, so it's possible for my brain to exist and all those cells to be there, but when they're not doing something, my consciousness ceases. Where are they? But here's a much creepier version. It seems that those cells in your brain can be doing a lot of stuff without generating consciousness. I want to see if you guys have ever been in this scenario. Okay. Have you ever gotten to a destination and parked your car and then realized like, oh, my God. I was not conscious while I was driving here. Mm-hmm. What happened? It's a blur. You remember, let's call it point A, mm-hmm. which was your last significant memory before the drive. Yeah. And then all of a sudden there's a missing gap and you're at – you you feel like you're at point B, but yeah. it may be point H, point J. <laughs> you know, many things have happened and uh you have this sort of localized amnesia. Yeah, yeah just the, the, the feeling that you – I, did I actually drive here because you were probably lost in thought in, you know, one section or several sections of your brain working together in that conscious part where you're paying attention to what my arms are doing and what my feet are doing. It's almost like it wasn't happening. Well, I would imagine, too, like with rote kind of mindless activities like that, this is easier than, let's say, you know, something like spending time with a loved one or like generating new memories and things like that. Exactly, Noel. So that's the important thing is the the rote repetitious aspect of it. So on these types of activities like driving or say, you know, other household chores Having sometimes. boring sex. Mowing, mowing the lawn. Didn't expect it to go that way. Nope. Yeah, mowing the lawn. Mowing the lawn is our show's euphemism for boring sex. Okay. Well, yeah, any of these repetitive activities, yeah, you can, you can like totally lose consciousness and yet your mind is still working. Think about all the stuff your brain has to be doing to drive you from one place to another. It's got to take in visual information and auditory information. Constantly. Constantly. Yeah. Constantly updating your mental model of what the road is, where you need to go. It's got to coordinate all your muscles with per- timing being very precise. Mm-hmm. Physical is, feedback from this, the wheel. Yeah. This is complex behavior without you being present in your mind for it, for it to happen. Ah, one point of order. Just a quick interjection. In addition to this, 
our brains are also keeping the entire human ship running, right? So yeah. many bodily processes that we are not consciously aware of. Uh, there's a thing that used to happen to me when I was a kid. I would lay awake at night and I was too conscious of my breathing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, if I don't forget that I've been breathing the whole time, if I keep concentrating on it, then what if it just stops? You know, I, I just to add to the point, it does seem mind-boggling when we think about it, how many things, not just when we're driving, but just existing, happen. Yeah, tons of what we do is unconscious. Uh, your brain constantly regulates activity within the body unconsciously. The uh, regulation and release of hormones, neurotransmitter reuptake, digestion, all this kind of stuff is going on, your brain telling your body what to do, but you not being conscious of it. Meanwhile, you're very conscious of, say, most of the running and jumping you do and mm-hmm. sometimes conscious of breathing. Why is that? Do you ever think about that? How come evolution created an animal that has conscious control of running and jumping, unconscious control of digestion, and optionally conscious control of breathing? What if you had to (laughs) consciously control your heart rate and your digestion, but unconsciously moved about through the world? The thought of that is making my heart rate speed up right now. Anyway, that's kind of a weird thing to to ponder. I mean, you can you can start to think of like evolutionary reasons why one might be selected for more than the other. But that also is interesting because it gives you reasons that consciousness might be biologically adaptive, that it could actually be useful for something. And that's a big question in the these all these debates about consciousness. Does consciousness actually do anything or is it just a helpless observer of what the body would be doing anyway? But I want to go back to the road analogy. Okay. There we are. We're on the road. All right. So you are in this highway hypnosis state. You're driving from one place to another. You, For some reason, why ever this happens, I'm not quite sure, but you are not conscious of what's going on. You're just somewhere else. And you're, you know, you're, your body is driving on its own, controlled by your brain, but not by your mind. Suddenly – Along the way, let's say you're coming to work okay. and uh, along uh, along I-75 or wherever you'd be traveling, you get to a place where there is a giant pit in the middle of the freeway and the god Molech is down there in the pit accepting infant sacrifices Ooh. and it's completely blocking your path to get to work. Okay, yeah. What would happen then? Well, then you would experience a moment of sudden lucidity, right? Yeah, you'd snap out of Mm -hmm. it. You'd come out of that highway hypnosis state, and what would happen next? You'd offer your allegiance to Moloch. No. Don't do that. Don't ever do that. Come on. Matt, I didn't realize we were split on Molech in here. (laughs) Sacrificing babies. It's fine. We're all close friends, but part of being good friends with someone is that you accept that you don't always agree. And Moloch is one of those things that is relatively divisive on our show. I just want to be candid. So we're snapped back to reality. Right. Boom. Mm. Here comes gravity. But, but why do you <laughs> – nice. Uh, so why do you snap back? Why do you snap back, Noel? Because oh. because there's a threat or a, there's danger. Yeah, you got to figure out what to do. Right. That suddenly that starts to become a point where you can see what your consciousness is being used for that it has some kind of biological function, suddenly – so you have all these activities that you can do and your body can carry out and your brain can regulate without your consciousness, even things as complex as driving. But suddenly when you've got to make a decision, uh. when there is novel stimuli that you did not expect to encounter and it doesn't seem to fit with your you know, rote conditioned behaviors, then suddenly you have to use your consciousness to make a decision and figure out what to do next. Yeah. 
So this reaction to that novel idea brings you back to the present moment and you begin do, – do you begin reevaluating the existing stimuli? Well, I mean think about what would happen in your own mind. I, I can say for me, I think what I would start to do is I would say, OK, I can't go this way. So I need to figure out what's the other way to get to work. And I would imagine in my mind sort of a map of the city and think what are the alternate routes I could use and how would I get to them? So it would be like modeling. Yeah. I mean what, what would – what do you – do you all disagree? No, I don't disagree, but I'm also wondering what happens when your base level is constantly presenting you with unexpected things and that becomes the norm. Like if you're a soldier, for example, like in a foxhole or like in a war zone and you constantly have to be shifting and adjusting and, you know, looking out for threats and there's so many of them that it's basically the norm. Well, I mean, in that case, you were probably in a a state of heightened awareness constantly, which probably leads to anxiety and stress, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, it can be very stressful to have too many demands placed upon your consciousness, right? Like sometimes we kind of want to slip into that unconscious state. It's relaxing. Decision fatigue. Yeah. Right? It's a real thing. And so, okay, so I, I love this exploration right now. Mullick has appeared on I-75 and we're driving to work and we say, oh, and we snap out of it and we say, okay, well, maybe if I get off at the uh, 14th Street exit, there won't be too much traffic and I'll be a little bit late and everybody will understand because it's Moloch again. Right. But here's a question. What if you couldn't do that? The part where you snap back and come come to your consciousness mm-hmm. and you make a model in your mind of how to get to work. What if your mind was not capable of any of that? What if you were a being for whom every activity in your life was in that unconscious autopilot state that we get into sometimes when highway hypnosis or when you're mowing the lawn, any of these things that you just do without thinking. Mm-hmm. Could it be possible for a being to exist in a permanent state like that? It seems like it could be possible, right? Yeah, I feel pretty close to that every once in a while. Well, there, there are also quite a few mammals who appear to behave that way. You know, I I guess, is this in any way related to metacognition, you know, thinking about thinking? Yeah, metacognition is often associated with the basis of consciousness. I mean, people have all kinds of debates about what consciousness exactly is, uh, and we're obviously not going to settle that question today. But metacognition, which thinking about thinking or regulating your own thinking, having the idea of not just having a thought, but thinking about the fact that you had a thought, Mm -hmm. is often what consciousness consists of. In, in some models, at least. So would it be possible to – and what would that be like to not think about thinking? Well, I mean it seems like it would be OK for lots of tasks. I mean you could get through a lot of your life without thinking about thinking until you hit these novel stimuli moments where you needed to make a decision and think about sort of uh, like you needed to do some internal simulation and modeling, like picturing that map in your head and trying to figure out how to get there. When instinct and conditioning won't suffice, what do you do? Now, here's where we're going to get to the uh, the book that is at the center of today's conversation. So recently on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, my co-host Robert Lamb and I did a couple of episodes on the concept of bicameralism, which was introduced in 1976 by the American psychologist Julian Jaynes in his book, The Origin of Consciousness in the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. And 
I got to say at the outset, this is one of the most fascinating books I've ever read. Wow. It, it makes an argument about the nature of consciousness and about the history of consciousness in the human species that ultimately I think is probably wrong. Like I probably don't agree with it, mm-hmm. but it is a fascinating hypothesis to explore with him because he pulls from so many different disciplines with tons of of uh, thoughtfulness and evidence. And it's just a really fascinating ride to go on. And it made quite a stir when it came out. I mean, it was pretty popular for a, you know, what ultimately is an academic work, right? Yeah, it's gotten a lot of attention over the years in in weird, odd kind of smatterings. Like it is actually not something that has been revisited a whole lot in the scientific or academic literature. One of the things that's frustrating about it is, okay, so it introduces, and we'll get to what the hypothesis is Mm -hmm. in just a second. I, I hate to keep teasing you, but it introduces this fascinating radical hypothesis about the history of consciousness, tries to offer some evidence for it, and seems to make some predictions about what would be found in the future. So what you really want is for a bunch of scientists to start testing what would be predicted by this hypothesis and see if it's true. Uh, it's, it's, the testing of its predictions has been somewhat slim. There, mm-hmm. there have been a few studies that have mentioned it, uh, some favorably, some unfavorably. But I guess the best we could say is that it remains controversial. So this is in no way considered a widely accepted hypothesis. But a lot of philosophers and scientists do consider it interesting and valuable, even if it's not necessarily correct. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that you point this out. There might be slim testing, but there's nothing definitive either way. Right. There's no absolutely yes, absolutely no. Well, I think a few, I think a few neurologists have said, look, modern neuroscience disproves his claims, but, uh, but others don't necessarily agree. So I, I think what I should just do now is start by giving you the straightforward version of Jane's conclusion, and then we can turn back to explaining it a little more. Yeah. Yeah. So, right. uh, Bicameral mind in a nutshell. Yeah. So Julian Jaynes' hypothesis in this book is that until about 3,000 years ago, human beings, meaning our species, Homo sapiens, was not conscious. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of odd. Like, how do you how do you imagine that? Because there there has not been significant biological evolution in three thousand years, mm-hmm. and, you know, since about one thousand BC. So what could have happened? Uh, we, we'll get to that. So he says that around one thousand BCE, modern human consciousness, meaning our our awareness of awareness, our internal ability to narratize, like we were talking about in that in that example, mm-hmm. it began as a cultural invention, probably in Mesopotamia. That spread across the world. And before that time, for a long time, for thousands of years before about 1000 BCE, almost all humans were not conscious in the way we were, but were commanded in all novel behaviors by hallucinated voices that they called gods. Let's let that that sink in. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's insane. So in this, in this, uh, understanding, if we have, Matt driving up I-75, he sees this ancient god, uh, he doesn't think, boy, I've got to take the exit to 14th Street. Instead, he hears something. What if he hears 
the voice of Moloch telling him, watch out for Moloch right there. He might think Sacrificing so. that baby. Yeah, he That'd might think wild. so. No, just, I mean, I'm, I'm afraid if I overcomplicated this by introducing Moloch into the example, <laughs> but. No, but I mean, my, my question though is like, this is not figurative. This is like the no. hypothesis is that there is an auditory hallucination of a voice. This is not like, you know, a metaphor. There's right. no self-association. Exactly. No, no, no. That, that is exactly what he's saying. He's literally saying that before about a thousand years ago, people were not conscious. They did not have the ability to snap out of the hypnotized state and think about what they would do. Instead, what happened is they stayed in the hypnotized state their entire lives. And when some kind of novel stimuli arose, something that could not be dealt with on basic instinct and conditioned behaviors, like when we're mowing the lawn, uh, when that happened, a voice would tell them what to do and they would hear the voice audibly within their head and then be uh, commanded. I yeah. guess by the voice. And the, yeah, yeah. And they, and they would obey ineluctably. They would obey in the sense that uh, Jane's talks in the book about instinctual obedience, like uh, how in, you know, uh, social animal species, when there is a dominant individual that you can really very strongly control people's behavior by His master's voice. Yeah. By displaying these dominant uh, sort of uh, signals and getting up in somebody's space and telling them what to do very firmly, people tend to obey. Uh, and so he, he says that this sort of instinct, the, the tendency to obey is internalized and it turns into the temporal lobe of the non-dominant hemisphere of the brain. So in most people, that's going to be the right hemisphere. Sure. If you are a right-handed person, the non-dominant hemisphere is going to be the right hemisphere. The temporal lobe of the non-dominant hemisphere generating this auditory hallucination and commanding the dominant hemisphere what to do. So part of the question would be, how does the non-dominant hemisphere know what to do? And you would say there that what appears to be happening is that the non-dominant hemisphere in Jane's model is the place where the integration and synthesis of information is taking place. So it's doing the kind of judgment part that we would normally do consciously, like you would you would put together a bunch of stuff in your mind, some pictures and some words mm-hmm. and some ideas and say, OK, here's what I need to do. Instead of all that happening consciously, this would happen unconsciously, isolated in the right hemisphere, delivered as an auditory hallucination to the left hemisphere. So would wow. this, without getting too far into the technical details, would this activity, the synthesis, also include memory of past events? Now, here's an interesting thing. You have to imagine what memory would consist of if you did not have the ability to be conscious. Right. Uh, now, yeah. I, I don't think we have the space today to fully discuss exactly what Jane's theory of consciousness is mm-hmm. uh, because it's a complex thing. Essentially for him, I'll, I'll try to give you the simple version. For Jane's, consciousness is based on language. He says that you couldn't be conscious without having a language. So there are some kind of disturbing takeaways from this. One of them is that it's impossible for, say, animals to be conscious if they don't really have a language that's capable. Here, here's the key part of generating metaphors. So uh, mm. metaphors are sort of the, the the ultimate workhorse of what language is. It's when you describe an unknown thing in terms of a known thing. One of my favorite uh, quotes from that is from a, a – quotes pertaining to that is a throwaway joke or observation in the television show Community. A metaphor is a thought wearing another thought's hat. That's a good one, man. Nice. Yeah. You know, the funny thing about metaphor is even the word metaphor is a metaphor – 
Yeah. The word metaphor comes from Greek. It means to carry across. So it takes this unknown concept of the abstract idea of taking the definition of one word and using it to help understand another word. Mm -hmm. But it takes that from the literal act of carrying something from one place to another. So the word metaphor is a metaphor. Well, and what's more meta than consciousness? I mean, like the ability – consciousness basically is the ability to extend our understanding of reality and kind of wrap it in a – sort of digestible form or we can think about the past, we can think about the future, yes. we can think about the present all at the same time. That is Jane's theory. So Jane says consciousness is a place, it, it is a metaphorical mind space based on the analogy of real space. Now that might sound kind of hard to understand for a second or it might take a second to set in, but when you start testing that against your experience, at least for me, I often find that that's true. In the same way that the meaning of the word metaphor is this abstract thing that's taken from the literal physical action of carrying something from one place to another, consciousness for Jane's is this abstract space that is based on the metaphor of real space. And when I was reading up on this, too, the idea of that God voice, we've basically subsumed that into this kind of unspoken voice, unheard voice that is our consciousness. So it's like we don't hear the voice, but we've absorbed that essentially into our ability to, you know, process all of this stuff. Yeah, it's interesting. So – Here's one thing. A bicameral person and a conscious person might not necessarily do different things in the same in in the same situation, right? They might both come to the hole in the freeway, see the god Molech, not know what to do for a second, and then take the same route to get around to work. The only difference is how the brain organizes and integrates and delivers that information. Now, there might be other cases where a conscious person and a bicameral person would do something different. Mm-hmm. And before we get too too lost on this point, there there is another disturbing implication. I want to plant the seed here for the, our exploration, and that is that if Jane's is correct, when we're following this line of reasoning, language is a pre-existing necessity for the development of consciousness. Right, which means that language predates consciousness in the yes. way we would understand it. Yes, and so that is to me that is a. Um, a real stereotype buster because we associate language, whether written or spoken, with this act of consciousness, of awareness. Yeah, you know? I mean this is a super radical hypothesis. I mean when I look at this and I say I find it interesting but I don't believe it, it's not necessarily because I have found any of his particular arguments very faulty. Uh, most of his arguments are I feel like are moderately to strongly persuasive. It's just that it goes so strongly against what you would tend to think is, the, you know, the, the base assumption that if there is such a thing as consciousness, it's a biological invention based on how brains work rather than a cultural invention ba- made possible by language. Um, but one thing – one other thing I should mention just to make clear – is also his idea about how the evolution of consciousness comes across. So basically you have to imagine in human history there's a three-stage evolution where human primates uh, first without language are like he imagines animals are, which are just 
stimulus response machines. Automatons. Yeah, automata. That humans like us that had very powerful brains, brains just as biologically powerful as ours, capable of as many calculations and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. They were just working on instinct and conditioning. Which is, and that's it. That's pretty frightening, right? Because yeah, it's does hard that, to imagine that. Does that mean agriculture as well? Uh, does that mean other other things we consider completely human inventions? You know, like cooking, hunting. Does that exist before consciousness? No, I mean uh, hunting. I think probably does. But once we get to agriculture, that's the next stage. So you've got the animal stage where we're just stimulus response machines. Then the evolution of language makes possible the transition to bicamerality. Bicamerality comes after this stage, and that's when we're in the state where we're still not conscious yet, but we're hearing these hallucinated voices. And then in the third stage, about 3,000 years ago, we make the final transition to modern human consciousness where we have the ability to narratize in this metaphorical mind space. Well, here we are. I think that's a good place to take a quick break, and then we'll dive into that metaphorical mind space. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. 
your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. And we're back. This is already such a head trip, you guys. I think we've got a a pretty good 40,000-foot view, right? We understand uh, some of the basic differentiators. And now, now, if you'd be so kind, Joe, I, I know that everybody listening is wondering, what evidence does Jane's base these claims on or what, you know, what does he draw from? Cause you mentioned that it's, it's, it's a far reaching argument. Yes. So it's a, it's a very multidisciplinary approach. He draws from the history of literature. He draws from archaeology. He draws from anthropology and understanding ancient religions and societies. He draws from, uh, neurology, from studying the function in different regions of the brain. That might be one of the most limited areas because he was writing back in 1976. We know more about regions of the brain now than we did then, but we still knew a decent amount then. And like I said, the the picture is not clear to me what neurology since then has had to say about his hypothesis. It seems that there are some results that sort of go against it and others that sort of go in favor of it. So I, I don't know if that helps us in one direction yet. Um, but then also psychology, of course, which was his own field. Mm-hmm. So I might go to one of his primary examples of – how ancient literature would inform this because literature is a great place to look for evidence of consciousness. You can just look at the characters and see, are the characters conscious? Do they introspect? Do they have the ability to narratize in mind space? Here is a really crazy thing that I never noticed before, but Jane's makes this argument pretty strongly. I haven't, uh, I've asked in our audience to see if anybody with ex- expertise in the classics, you know, in ancient Greek literature, uh, can contradict what he has to say. I haven't had any takers yet, but he makes the argument pretty convincingly that the characters of Homer's The Iliad are not conscious. Yeah, this this was the mind-blowing thing for me as well because, again, we – I think I, I'm learning about what a high pedestal we place the concept of consciousness on, mm-hmm. the understanding of something like one of the world's most famous works of literature yeah. uh, is that it must inherently be uh, made by Con- – Conscious thought, yeah. yeah. I mean when you picture the writer – you pick, I mean, maybe you don't. I do. I picture a person 
in thought. I picture a person who is consciously introspecting about what to write next. But you have to imagine that literature before the conscious period, if the, obviously if this is true, we're just entertaining it sure. for the sake of argument. We're what ifing. Yeah, we're what ifing. If there were such a thing as a bicameral period, what would the writing process of a bicameral author be like? This is a person who does not have the power to introspect or narratize in a mind space. It would be transcription, right? Ex- it w- exactly. It would be essentially taking transcription from literature that is compiled and integrated unconsciously by the right brain in in most people, by the non-dominant hemisphere. Wow, it sounds like there's a plan almost. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so so you would see examples of this in, say, how how the ancient act of composition is described. Here's something kind of creepy. What if you took some of what appears to be the literary conventions of ancient literature – just literally. <laughs> How about Sing to Me, O Muse, the song of all, all these Greek poems starting with the invocation of the muse. Oh, wow. Now, we usually look at that as a literary device. We yeah. say, okay, they're just being metaphorical. They're saying like, I'm trying to get into the mood about writing. I want some, you know, I need this introspective juice. And so that's my metaphor. This God, the muse is my metaphor. What if you just take them at their word? They're asking the god to start telling them what to write. That's amazing. Well, but I mean, it also, it doesn't, it's not too far of a jump from the way we think of ancient civilizations and the way they treat gods and act as though all things come directly as a result of their relationship with God. And it's very specific. It's like my crops grow because I did this thing. Yes. And the gods made it so. It's yes. Not, it's not uh, figurative in any way. And it's not just these external activities like what allows the crops to grow, what changes the weather. It's internalized influence of the gods that we see in Jane's interpretation of the Iliad. So he looks at the Iliad and he says – I, I'm looking through this thing and trying to find places where characters are introspecting. He says there's maybe a couple of places and these appear to be later additions to the text added by scribes long after it was first composed. If you look at the original version of the text and what appears to be its oldest parts, characters do not make decisions by internal introspection. When novel stimuli arise, a god shows up and tells them what to do. So Achilles is about to strike down Agamemnon. He's like, I I don't know what to do. I'm so angry. I'm going to attack my king. And then a god shows up, grabs him by the hair and says, don't do it. And then repeat it again and again throughout this ancient epic poem Whenever people are faced with novel stimuli, a god shows up, says, do this, and they do it. So, uh, as you said, ineluctably, right? Yeah. And so there's another – there's one thing that really stuck out to me about this where James claims there is no concept of will nor nor a word for it No, in the Iliad. I sure do remember – thinking that the Odyssey was a hell of a lot more interesting than the Iliad when I was a kid. And he makes that contrast. I mean, the Odyssey seems to have a lot more evidence of consciousness within it than the Iliad does, for Jane's at least. There's inner torment in the Odyssey. Characters develop. So with a lot of his – a lot of his claims with the Iliad in particular 
dwell on some word usage. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So James points out that in the Iliad, there are a number of words in the ancient Greek vocabulary that if you look to later texts, have meanings that are clearly associated with consciousness and conscious introspection, but as deployed in the Iliad, mean something else. Mm-hmm. They have these corporeal, non-conscious meanings. For example, the word sihi, like our word psyche, in later centuries, he says this, you know, you can find it all throughout Greek literature. It means consciousness or mind or soul. But in the Iliad, he's like, it looks like this is just referring to sort of life fluids like blood or breath. Mm-hmm. The word thumos, he says, in later centuries, you look through Greek literature and this appears to me to mean something like emotional mind or soul. In the Iliad, he says it means something more like motion, like when a soldier dies on the field, the thumos goes out of their arms and legs. Mm-hmm. The word noose, which he says in later Greek literature appears to mean something like conscious mind or consciousness. In the Iliad, he says it means like field of vision. So if you can see something, it's yeah, in your oh. noose. Wow. Kind of, kind of freaky, huh? It really and, is. And Zeus holds uh... – like Zeus holds Odysseus in his noose. Yeah. He holds him in his eyes. In his yeah. Zeus noose. Yeah. <laughs> Zeus's noose is loose. The noose of Zeus. Mm. I mean, it's like kind of. Dr. Zeus. But, it, sorry. It, no, no, no. I mean, it's, it's kind of creepy to imagine, it's, isn't it? It is. No, it is. And I mean, it's like, it's all entirely practical and functional stuff you know it's like literally i this is what i see this is how i interact with it and yet there is still like this mystical element to it where we're being fed instructions by these like deities so it's 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 fascinating uh counterpoint where there's no agency yeah and it goes straight back to jane's idea of consciousness being a metaphor based on physical space because or physical actions in physical space because think about how often Often in your consciousness, you express conscious content or conscious behavior with the metaphor of vision. Mm-hmm. Like when somebody is explaining something to you and you don't get it and then you finally consciously comprehend it, I see. Yeah, or, yes. or having yeah. vision, yeah. having a vision, being like uh, someone that has foresight that can – Take a top-down view of something mentally. Yeah. Oh, and oracles have a part to play in our story later. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so this also maybe calls to mind for some of us the concept of like soma or sarks or numa. You know, uh, the, there's the word soma that eventually comes to mean body, right? But uh, it's always in the plural in Homer, and it just means dead limbs. Of a corpse. And now there's a drug called Soma that gives you dead limbs like a corpse. Yeah. <laughs> Carisoprodol. Is that the name? Yes. Oh, oh wow. You were ready with that one. <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah. Have you been waiting yeah. to drop that one? Yeah, for about three months. That's why you were grinning. Yeah. The whole past three months. <laughs> I knew it was coming. So – you what, had vision. So what, obviously what his his exploration of the Iliad is just one of the many historical avenues that Jane's goes down in his book. There's no way for us to explore all of them here. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you want, if you want more detail, you can read his book, or you can go listen to the two episodes that Robert Lamb and I did on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, where we we go a lot more into. Uh, we still don't cover everything, but mm-hmm. a lot of the different examples he discusses from history. Some of the other things he brings up are, for example, the theocratic organization of ancient society. Uh, when you look at the rulers of many ancient kingdoms, it is just almost ubiquitous that the king is a god or a representative of a god. Mm-hmm. 
Now, what if instead of thinking about that metaphorically or as some kind of tool of social control, we just took it literally and said, okay, what they're saying about the role of the king is correct. The god tells the king what to do and then the king commands the people. We are all ruled by this non-dominant temporal lobe. Exactly. The king's right hemisphere or if the king was right-handed, the non-dominant hemisphere of the king is presenting to the king as a god telling the king what to do. And that is being interpreted by the king's dominant hemisphere as instructions that must be carried out and delivered on as commands to the people. And if that's that's the case, there's another interesting twist here. If that's the case, it explains why gods often only appear to the person they are uh, interacting with, right? The yeah. person they are commanding. Yeah. So think about this in the history of religions. Early religions seem to have a lot of direct interaction with idols and with God experiences directly. I mean, if you read about the the religious phenomenology of the most ancient religions in the world, people talk constantly about conversations with the gods where the gods tell them what to do. And they talk about going to see the gods. Oftentimes, these are represented as idols. Like Mm -hmm. in part of Jane's theory is that idols were things created to just help people trigger their hallucinations when they wanted information, they could put their sel- themselves in an altered state of consciousness by interacting with these idols that would get the hallucinations going. Mm-hmm. Now, you see that and then you see this transition to other kinds of religion. It's not that people used to be more religious and now they're less religious. Religion just seems to be a very different kind of thing later on. So in the last 2000 years or so, you start to see these religions based on things like faith and dogma, mm-hmm. which if you imagine a bicameral world, even though everybody's believing in gods, what's the role for something like faith in there? Like you don't need to be told to believe in a doctrine or something. It's just like you're talking to the gods all the time. There's no need for faith. And you're doing what they say instantly. Yeah. Faith sort of inherently incorporates the idea of overcoming doubt. Yeah, exactly. And especially law, written law. This is a big thing for Jaynes where he talks about how one of the major factors precipitating the transition from the bicameral mind to the conscious mind is well one thing he he points out calamity so there'll be these widespread disasters and the late bronze age collapse and all that that caused problems in the way society was working that sort of put pressures on people and forced them to find new ways to structure their minds in order to live mm-hmm. but the other major influence he highlights is literature and literature would include written law think about how the presence of a written law would undermine your relationship with the gods that tell you what to do. Yeah, if there's any kind of conflict there, yeah. where which side do you choose? Yeah, and so he he actually argues that there are probably going to be these periods where say within one particular religious tradition there would be a conflict between the conscious people who are trying to practice the conscious version of that religion and the bicameral people who are trying to practice the bicameral version of that religion. He gives one example from uh, from the Old Testament where he says, you know, there are these passages in the Old Testament in, in the Hebrew Bible where it says you really should not tolerate anybody who has an obe. What does that mean, this word <laughs> obe? And he says that what he thinks this word means is like familiar spirit. Meaning that there could have been at the time a brotherhood of conscious priests 
who were trying to enforce the conscious version of the religion and saw the people who were trying to practice their bicameral hallucinated voice version of the religion as blasphemous and and causing trouble within their their control over what faith and doctrine was. Does this tie into monotheism at that point as well? Well, yeah, it would be hard to have monotheism under bicamerality. You could imagine that if the bicameral world transitioning into a conscious world, you would probably see a concurrent transition away from polytheism and toward monotheism, which kind of does line up with the timeline we see. So you can see how fascinating this is and how easily this becomes a very, very deep rabbit hole. but. We would be remiss if we did not point out that there is also a lot of criticism here. You know? Sure. I mean, there, there are tons of reasons to doubt this. I mean, one would just be to say, well, okay, it, he, he puts a lot of interesting evidence on the table, but, uh, a, a statement this radical, you know, mm-hmm. a hypothesis this, this radical doesn't really get anywhere until it makes predictions about things yet unknown that we find out are in fact correct. And so I would say it has not yet met that burden. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I don't think it has predicted much that we've discovered. Oh, yeah, it's true. One thing that might be interesting would be if we discover whole caches of ancient documents that we've never found before. You know, archaeologists turn up ancient literature that's previously undiscovered and we find a transition along the lines of what he claims is there for the Iliad and the Odyssey. So if we see, you know, uh, 4,000 year old literature or, you know, 3,500-year-old 3, literature having all these words that later on we know in these languages mean things about consciousness and in context do not mean anything about consciousness. I'd say that's a good that's a good prediction confirmed that we're seeing more things line up with the timeline of literature not reflecting consciousness and then later reflecting consciousness. Why do you think there's no effort to do that kind of analysis? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I've seen some people try to look at other uh, ancient works of literature and say, you know, what? how much introspective content is there? But mm-hmm. I, I don't know that anybody's really gone that deep on it yet. I mean, th- there might be a study out there I'm not aware of, but... There's also, there's also a, a heap of, <laughs> not to make a heap problem, but there's, there's also a heap of differing constraints. If we're talking literature of that age, mm-hmm. then it may be radically different in one place for entirely unrelated reasons. Well, right. I mean, so think about the alternatives. Let's just assume that the bicameral hypothesis is not correct okay. and that people have always been conscious. And yet at the same time, let's just take Jane's as as correct in his argument that those words in the Iliad don't reflect any conscious content, what would explain that? That's an interesting problem in itself. How come these conscious people creating an ancient work of literature did not put any consciousness into the work? That's, you know, that's a fascinating question. I've got to ban myself from using the word fascinating for at least the rest of this episode. And in this in this exploration, I guess one of the big questions people would run into is, okay, this is fascinating. Even the people who criticize Jane's and disagree with the idea say, wow, what a, oh, I did it again. What a, what an interesting thing. You know thing. that's Matt's word. <laughs> what an interesting, what, a, what an interesting proposal. What a brain raking proposal. There mm. we go. <laughs> you got the double ooh. That's pretty rare. Got to earn that one. But, 
to to what end? What where does this lead us? What are the implications? How does this exist in the modern world? Ah, but not so fast, Ben. First, we're going to hear from our sponsor. Snagajob is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snagajob is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand. Tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals, your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. 
we've returned, some of the implications that are pretty clear here is the idea that religion is related to internal hallucinations, which may may seem offensive to some people at this time. We're not advocating this. We are saying it's the argument, right? Well, I mean, Jains wouldn't necessarily say that modern religions are related to internal hallucinations. Mm-hmm. I think he would have said that the ancient religions of the bicameral peoples, but as as uh, as we were talking about earlier, modern religion is uh, just very different. I mean, just descriptively very different from the kinds of religion that you would imagine would have been practiced by bicameral people. And what are what are some what are some vestiges if they exist? Well, one thing that would be quite obvious that Jane's point out points out is the condition of schizophrenia. Okay. Um, so schizophrenia is often characterized by the perception of auditory hallucinations. People hear voices and they, they hear voices with great lucidity often. It's uh, a lot of times it's hard for people who have never had an auditory hallucination to imagine that you could hear a voice that isn't really there and hear it as clearly and as, you know, as as. Uh, I don't know what the word as really as mm-hmm. um, uh, as absolutely concretely as the voice of somebody in the room. But it can I, I've read tons of reports. It can absolutely feel like that. Auditory hallucinations can be incredibly convincing and powerful and can have this kind of sway over behavior. Many other things about schizophrenia do seem to line up with some of the phenomenology of what Jane's imagines would be the bicameral mind. So there's a sort of loss of the ability to narratize the self sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes people with schizophrenia have difficulty imagining the self, like, a, like the draw a person test. This is a test sometimes used to diagnose schizophrenia where um, – People who have the condition have difficulty drawing a person. Then and there's the uh, additional thing, for instance, the idea that in some cases, uh, people suffering from schizophrenia are able to tickle themselves. Did you hear that one? No, I haven't heard that. But that's that seems like it could maybe be compatible with the bicameral hypothesis just because of the uh, the division between the hemispheres of the brain that would be implied there. Mm-hmm. And what's another strange thing about this is that Regardless of whether you agree with this idea or whether you disagree, uh, there is no denying that it has influenced the modern world, even if it's untrue, in very strange and meaningful ways. If part of the argument is based on literature and art, the the concept of bicameralism itself has been driving literature and art. Well, not only that, we've talked a little bit about how this hypothesis could be used to explain the evolution of religion, I suppose. But I don't think we've really touched on the idea that when those voices went away, it was negative. It caused anguish. Traumatic. And this is another thing that ties into schizophrenia. I mean, we often think about schizophrenia as a sense of being abandoned, you know, by your God. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, like I was saying with schizophrenia, often people, um, don't necessarily perceive all of the voices that they hear during schizophrenic hallucinations as negative. Like sometimes they see the voices as helpful or sometimes they see them as comforting. Other times they do see them as negative or very distressing. Um, as I would imagine in some cases, the bicameral gods could be like the, the gods 
in this case would have been your own mind. So they would have been as powerful and as various as people's own minds tend to be. So you could have voices that would be very smart and very helpful. You could have voices that are not so smart and not so helpful. You could have voices that are illogical and commanding you to do bad things. You could have voices that are nice. You could have voices that are mean and critical. I mean, just think about how much individuality there is in the way our our minds are built. And you can imagine that same thing in the relationship between the bicameral god and the bicameral person. But anyway, if you find your voices helpful and comforting, when they go away, this can be very distressing to you. And Jane's pulls together a lot of evidence to suggest that when people's gods vanished, when they made this transition from bicamerality to consciousness, it was traumatic for them. Like he cites all this ancient literature of people saying, I want my gods back. He even cites an example from the Psalms where people are saying, my heart pants for you, O gods. Where are you? Come back. Wow. It makes me think of the fall, the fall of man, of Adam and Eve. Well, that's uh, how it's explained is like that's yeah. when it happened. Yeah. Right. Like that was literally what caused us to be abandoned. Before that, we were all one. It was the, He calls it the Elohim, I believe, the yeah, great ones. The, the Elohim is one of the words in the Hebrew Bible used for the name of God. It's usually translated in modern English translations in a singular for God. Mm-hmm. But it he, he argues that really in the ancient context, it should be translated as gods. It is a plural word, but it, yeah. the way I understand it, it could mean singular or plural. Um, and he just says we should translate it plural, you know, how, how it would yeah. be in the ancient context. And it's people talking about how they want the voices back. Yeah. And just this gets into one tiny thing that we've covered before on this show, which hmm. is the possibilities of hallucinogens, physical, the eating of substances mm-hmm. in early man and how possibly that could have played a role in the connection or a separation, you know, a, a a melding of the mind in a way because of things like psilocybin. Yeah, Terence McKenna, right? Yeah, yeah. Food of the Gods, Terence McKenna. Some of these ideas are put forth there. It's fascinating stuff. Grandpa Terry. I know. <laughs> Grandpa Terry talking on the ranch, telling everybody what's going on. I wish you guys had invited Noel and I to hang out with him when you were <laughs> when you were hanging out and learning his amazing impressions. Uh, I, no, I never hung out with Terrence. Yeah, that would have been great. Yeah, but it just makes yeah. me sorry. It just makes me think. If, I wonder if there is something there. You know, if we just, for sake of argument, take that the bicameral theories are correct, and you have these two separate hemispheres, and then somehow you're introducing these chemicals that are causing. Other types of hallucinations, mm-hmm. physical, chemical oh, hallucinations. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, check it out. Uh, Philip K. Dick, the sci-fi writer, he was known to dabble in the hallucinogenic arts, shall mm-hmm. we say? Uh, in fact, I think he kind of like had this like crazy flop house that he owned where people would just kind of hippies and stuff would come through and sleep on the floor and they would share their drugs. And he, you know, there was a period in his life where he just kind of existed, I believe, in a constant hallucinogenic state. And he absolutely adored Jane's book. Really? Uh, and in fact, he wrote him a letter personally, um, expressing this love of the book and how it really helped him explain some things. Um, there's a, a trilogy. I think he didn't finish one of them, but there was a, a trilogy of books, one of which is called Valis that um, Philip K. Dick wrote, where the character's name is Horse Lover Fat, which uh, Horse Lover 
Um, I believe Philip is translated to mean horse lover and Dick is the German word for fat. So he basically <laughs> is writing about himself. And in this book, he is narrating it as like an omniscient narrator, but then sometimes switches to where he's talking about himself as though he's the same person that he's narrating mm-hmm. about. And this, the, the one big part of the story is based on the real thing that happened to him where he claims that a pink laser from outer space shot into his brain and gave him knowledge of a strangulated um, intestacle in his son that could have potentially killed him mm-hmm. and the knowledge that he received allowed him to intervene and save his son's life. Um, and wow. from that point on, you know, again, psychedelics, a lot of, a lot of that at play. He claimed to hear these voices. So what do you say in the letter? It's a long letter, but I'll just read you a couple of parts um, where he says, what I did not expect, however, was to find myself under the jurisdiction of an ancient god who commanded me first this way and then that, extricating me from a highly stressful situation I had found myself in. No theory of my own, and for three years I have studied and labored to come up with a theory, or by anyone else, uh, assuming he means anyone else but you, talking to Jane, uh, could account for the exquisitely beautiful voice, the inner voice, which I heard off and on for 11 months. At first, I told my wife that the Elohim were talking to me. Later, during one of my many hypnagogic dialogues between me and this articulating entity, it also communicated in dreams, in written form. It informed me that Jesus was a name for Zeus Zagreus. However, in most dreams early on, it appeared in the form of Sybil of Apollo, but with a third eye and lateral lens form by which she could see and hence know everything. He then wraps it up with this. Let me say in conclusion that your superb book has now made it possible for me to discuss my experiences openly without being merely called schizophrenic. That's awesome. He was even a great writer of letters. Mm-hmm. And it's heady stuff. <laughs> And, of course, when we're talking about modern literature, we would be remiss. You can read that letter in full online, Mm -hmm. correct? Of course. And and, uh, we would be remiss if we did not at least briefly mention Westworld. Uh, And Westworld encounters some topics like this. Now, given the show's – given our mutual agreement between us as host and between our audience, we are not going to spoil – Westworld for you. But if you enjoy science fiction, you enjoyed this episode, we do highly recommend that you consider checking it out. If you can afford an HBO subscription or no friend. Let me me spoil it. John Wayne is God. Oh, well, everybody knows that. And hey, hit us up. We'll we'll share our HBO Go accounts or at least our moms. (laughs) (laughs) So in the course of our exploration today, there's another big thing we have to mention. We have touched on a controversial topic, the concept of hearing voices, sometimes called auditory hallucinations. And if you are listening to this and you feel that you are suffering from a condition related to this or similar to this, uh, please know that you are not alone. You are not isolated. And there are organizations around the world that are waiting to support you, to help you. You can call Lines for Life at 1-800-273-8255. You can also check out if you are someone who both feels you hear voices and you feel at peace with this or you want to explore it more. You can also check out organizations like the International Hearing Voices Network. Um. Guys, I'm hearing a voice right now. 
It's super producer Paul, and he's saying, wow, you guys have been recording for like an hour and 15 minutes already. I didn't hear that. I just – oh, you didn't hear that? I don't think he's anybody – He's talking did. again. Are you – I just heard that the crocodile must be fed a bunch of times. What? So what does that mean? <laughs> I don't know. I have a voice just uh, whispering Zanzibar at all times. At all times. At even now, it's very difficult to focus. It's like can, a really sp- specific form of tinnitus. It mm-hmm. just sounds it's like Zanzibar. Zanzibar itis aside, Joe, thank you so much for Seriously. coming on the show. Thank yeah. y'all for having me. That it's was been awesome. a lot of fun. This is a very nice dovetail to our earlier episode uh, with Joe at, mm-hmm. on Gnosticism. Oh, yeah. that one was fun too. So if you enjoyed this episode, please check out our earlier works on Gnosticism. Uh, Joe, you were also on the show when we talked about internet trolling and shills. Oh, yeah. Paid government online manipulators. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. uh, that's become a little more relevant since we first talked about it, huh? Most certainly. No, that's fake news. <laughs> so <laughs> It's fake news. Um, one thing that is not fake, however, is stuff to blow your mind. If you have checked out our show, if you like our show even a little bit, you are going to love these guys and the topics that they explore. So don't delay. As soon as this podcast ends, Click over, check out Stuff to Blow Your Mind, get a deep dive into the bicameral mind. You know, I was on a very uh, short trip last week, um, and I listened to your episode on It and the Deadlights. Oh, yeah? And I really dug it. I, I very much enjoyed it. Oh, well, shout out to my coworkers, uh, Robert Lamb and oh, Chris, right. Christian Sager. That no, that was yeah. Christian who was on there, but they do a great it job. It was great. They talk about, like, you know, Pennywise and the deity from It and kind of ca- – ca- they couch it in terms of, uh, you know – predatory behavior and in in nature and uh it was you you know it, it it was really really great i really enjoyed it did you just spoil it for me i, I think steven king spoiled it so. kidding i'm kidding. just kidding we saw it together come on we did see it together <laughs> it's <is> true <laughs> so the voices in our respective heads are compelling us to end today's episode however not the show we'd like to hear what you think uh is there some sand to this argument how much a grain Two grains, a heap. <laughs> I'm glad you went there. <laughs> anything you want to you want to talk about? Uh, anything we've covered on this episode? You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter. Where we're conspiracy stuff. Is a pile smaller than a heap? Hmm. I f- I feel like it is intuitively, but I don't. I, you know, I don't know who the authority would be on that. Well, you know what? If you guys are an authority out there, let us know. Send us an email. Please, let us know the difference. It's, it's killing us. Uh, you can send us an email. We are conspiracy at HowStuffWorks.com. is waiting for you at King's Island? The holy cow, we're way too high and here comes the drop kind of fun. The make a splash all summer kind of fun. The I can't believe I ate that whole funnel cake. Let's get another kind of fun. But most importantly, at King's Island, you'll find for the fun of it kind of fun. Don't wait to start your fun season. King's Island is now open on weekends. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.